Welcome to the Voices in Health Law podcast, a podcast sponsored by the ABA Health Law section. I'm your host today, Felicia Z, and I'm the managing partner of Athene Law from out in California. I am so excited to be here today with Kate Driscoll with Morrison and Forrester to talk about telehealth fraud, an issue that we are all watching with a lot of curiosity as things heat up after the pandemic. As background, Kate is a member of the Morrison Forrester's Investigations and White Collar Defense Practice Group, and she focuses her practice on investigations and enforcement actions related to white collar crime, as well as complex commercial litigation. She comes with five years of experience in a wide range of criminal and civil cases as an assistant United States attorney in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today, Kate. Thanks so much, Felicia. Happy to be here and look forward to our discussion. So let's just jump right into it. We've heard a lot about the boom in telehealth over the last five years, particularly with the pandemic. What have you seen in your own practice with respect to trends in telehealth? So thanks for that question, Felicia. I think that enforcement that we've seen of late has been primarily focused on large schemes involving pretty egregious examples of fraud. So many of the major recent enforcement actions relate to nationwide kickback and referral schemes involving testing labs and durable medical equipment or DME companies, think walkers, wheelchairs, orthotics. And we've seen that DOJ has charged a wide variety of uh, targets, including marketers, executives of telemed companies, owners of DME companies, testing lab facilities, all the way down to individual physicians. We've also also seen fraudulent billing as a focus for DOJ, which has included phantom patients that that don't exist or billing for sham telehealth interactions that never occurred. And I think another percolating concern, though perhaps not per se fraud, is whether telehealth is driving overutilization of healthcare services. So rather than an individual going directly to in-person care, they are first seeking to receive care via telehealth, and the care they need can't be really appropriately delivered via telehealth. So as a result, the individual has to see two physicians rather than getting the care they really need with one in-person visit. So to answer your question in a a simple sentence, it's been the low-hanging fruit, Felicia. And I think I'm interested to see where DOJ goes next as they start to look at more nuanced fraud. So this summer, the DOJ announced that they had charged dozens with $1.2 billion in healthcare fraud with respect to telehealth schemes. Those press releases have a lot of information about these particular schemes. What is one that stood out to you? Well, I think one pattern that's kind of worth going through in more detail is how the kickback schemes work kind of from a higher level. Kickback schemes are really have been the most prevalent in the DOJ actions that we've seen so far. And just to be clear, DOJ has been targeting telehealth fraud even before the public health emergency 2018-2019, but we have seen a, a rapid deployment of resources and enforcement actions since the public health emergency. So let me kind of walk through what these typical kickback schemes look like. Um, so in a typical scheme, a telehealth company and a DME, durable medical equipment supplier or lab, will conspire to share kickbacks for money generated by false or fraudulent claims to government insurers. So first, a telehealth company will solicit illegal kickbacks from a provider or supplier, like a DME company, pharmacy, or testing lab. And then the telehealth company will then use marketing strategies to attract individuals on Medicare and Medicaid to receive telemedicine services. 
sometimes targeting vulnerable populations uh, such as the elderly. Then the physicians of the telehealth provider then order the medically unnecessary DME products or expensive lab testing for those patients. The telehealth company may pay the physicians to write these medically unnecessary prescriptions. And sometimes the prescriptions are actually bundled with services that are actually requested and or necessary, such as COVID-19 testing, for example. Then the DME supplier or lab pays for the prescription and fulfills the unnecessary order. And in some cases, it doesn't actually provide the equipment or test results back to the insured individual. And then kind of following through that chain, the DME supplier or lab will submit the claim, whether for the service was, that was actually performed or not, to the government health insurer for reimbursement. And after that, the kickback payments are made to the telehealth company for having provided the upfront referrals. We're seeing in many cases that in order to cover up the referral and kickback scheme, telehealth companies have set up shell companies often outside the U.S. in an attempt to hide the illegal kickback uh, payments. And in the end of this loop, the DME supplier or lab gets the reimbursement paid, which can be quite profitable in cases where they don't actually provide the tests or equipment. And then the telehealth company receives a kickback. Those are the most common schemes that we've been seeing so far. I think you'll see that trend and that, that theme play through all of the enforcement actions, including the most recent one in July of 2022. So in most of these schemes, do all of the participants in the scheme generally know what's going on? It's a good question. I think that these schemes have been quite egregious. So the, the conduct hasn't really been on the line where it, maybe there was a shade of gray. I think what we've seen, for example, in the most recent one that you referenced in July of 22, it was 1.2 billion in fraudulent telemed, uh, cardiovascular and cancer genetic testing and DME schemes. One billion of that was actually telehealth fraud related. And in those schemes, you know, there's payment of illegal kickbacks, bribes paid by lab owners and, oper and operators in exchange for referrals by patient of patients by medical professionals working with these fraudulent telemed and digital medical technology companies. And it, the, the conduct is so um, egregious. And I think there really is no question that these individuals uh, had the knowledge required to understand that this was an illegal practice. And now an exciting word from our generous sponsors. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor AAA, four-star premier sponsors BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors Pinnacle Health. Now back to the program. So if you're working with a telehealth company, what are red flags they should be looking out for to avoid getting wrapped up in one of these schemes unknowingly? So first, I think uh, at the outset, all companies um, involved in this space need to ensure that they have a robust compliance program and ensure that written policies are in place that expressly require compliance with applicable federal and state, state laws. We have to understand that the telehealth space has been a very dynamic one. Uh, regulations have been changing uh, all the time. And there are certain federal waivers that are continuing until the end of the public health emergency. There are some state waivers that have already been rescinded. So companies must pay close attention to ensuring that their compliance policies are aligned with the regulations in place at the time. They should pay attention and devote resources to achieve compliance with data privacy and security laws because of this health information is very sensitive. Compliance is Training is an important one. 
specifically focusing on billing and coding requirements as the landscape has changed and likely will continue to change as we move beyond the public health emergency. I think that these things also have to be pressure tested. There needs to be annual audits of the compliance program to assess the compliance and effectiveness. I think telehealth companies should be careful in monitoring relationships with third parties to avoid unintentionally becoming wrapped up in a fraud scheme. So using tools like background and conflicts checks when hiring new providers or contracting with third parties is, is best practices there. In companies, there should be reporting mechanisms uh, such as anonymous tip lines so that suspected wrongdoing can be reported by employees at any level of the organization. And if there is an allegation of misconduct, companies should take it seriously and they should assess the merits and scope of the report, conduct an internal investigation, and then depending on what they learned during the course of that investigation, assess the exposure faced by the company, discuss whether to refer the matter to prosecutors or to make a voluntary disclosure to DOJ. Some tools that can be used by telehealth companies include requiring in-person visits before approving expensive testing and DME prescriptions. And I really think an important one is to really scrutinize the billing practices of telehealth providers as DOJ moves from these more obvious instances of criminal behavior and look to more nuanced regulatory rule breaking. Companies should consider using data and analytical tools to their advantage. When I was at DOJ, we used data analytics to spot potential fraud. And in the telehealth context, companies can use analytics to identify providers who are potentially billing relatively greater amounts of tele telehealth services or are ordering more expensive DME or expensive uh, diagnostic testing. So I was wondering if you could help explain a little bit about this percolating concern you mentioned, that telehealth might be driving overutilization versus just providing an alternative modality of providing services that otherwise would have been provided. What are your thoughts on that? Look, I think telehealth is a great tool. It improves a patient's health by allowing communication between a patient and the physician when in-person care is not necessary or possible, which was very important during um, the public health emergency. It can increase access to care for rural communities, underserved and vulnerable populations, and individuals who can't secure in-person care. So there really is an important role for telehealth to be played. Um, but at the same time, as we're seeing these dramatic increases of the use of telehealth, and I know there was obviously a spike at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, but it's, it's leveled out now. Um, and it's still 38 times more use than, um, than it was prior to COVID-19. So dramatic expansion. McKinsey estimates that it's going to be a $250 billion industry. So I just think we should be thoughtful and constantly assess you know, where it adds value, but also maybe where it may lead to risk of overutilization. And in those instances, whether we're able to streamline that process and go straight to an in-person visit, depending on the type of issue, medical issue that it is. So I think some nuance and a little bit more of a defining of certain types of medical issues or procedures that really should just go first to in-person. So we should be thinking about that as the costs to federal health insurers in this space will continue to increase. And I wanted to clarify, because I think earlier you talked about having in-person visits after screening online in order to confirm that the patient required that, whatever that service might be. Um, isn't there a risk of duplication of services in those instances where you're essentially just copying what was already done in the telehealth visit? 
I do think that some of these uh, more expensive, you know, orthotics or, or things like that, it would be more helpful for the physician to lay hands on the patient or to see them in person. I think it's difficult to assess whether the patient has shin splints if you can't feel um, or really kind of work with the person and lay hands on them. So I think it's in that instance, an in-person visit in the, in the first place makes the most sense. But I think in an effort to capture the fraud piece of this, at least having the backstop of meeting in person will um, likely diminish the amount of fraud that we're seeing in ordering these DME supplies and expensive testing. In terms of what we've seen with respect to the enforcement activities to date, you've mentioned that there a lot of it's been low-hanging fruit, right? Where you have physicians who've never actually even done a telehealth visit with a patient signing orders or, you know, medically unnecessary prescription or phantom patients. That's all very obvious stuff. But as the hanging fruit gets all picked, I think I would suspect that the DOJ and um, the OIG are going to start looking at areas that are more nuanced. What do you see in the in the horizon for this area of enforcement? Well, I think False Claims Act is a big one. False Claims Act is a is a primary tool used by DOJ to combat fraud on the government. There's both the criminal and civil side of that, and I think we've seen in 2021 that. There was over five point, I think it was 5.6 billion in recoveries in 2021, and 5 billion of that was related to health care. I think we're likely to see increased use of Civil False Claims Act to tackle telehealth fraud, especially in the more nuanced areas of enforcement, where there is fraud and regulatory rule breaking, but not egregious actions that rise to the level deserving of, of criminal charges. And I also think we'll see some more actions stemming from concerns raised by whistleblowers. Whistleblowers receive a variety of, of federal protections for raising concerns about potential fraud about their, at their company, whether it be telehealth, uh, DME provider, or a lab. And in these more nuanced fraud schemes, like those that focus on billing fraud and may use more sophisticated methods of concealment and fraudulent billing, whistleblowers are likely to, to, to be particularly important in revealing the sources of fraud and in the False Claims Act, private citizens uh, can bring suit against wrongdoers on behalf of the government. And the ind individuals are incentivized to do this because they are rewarded a portion of the proceeds collected um, by the government in the, in the action. I also think we're, like, we're like to, likely to see increased regulation in the telehealth space. So it seems that the requirements are still in flux on both the state and federal level. We can anticipate that telehealth services will eventually carry much more stringent requirements for, for modality types. For example, must be face-to-face -face visits rather than audio or text only. As we've seen with CMS and mental health, CMS will require one in-person visit every six months. This could carry over a state-level regulation for mental health, other types of healthcare services, and that would certainly uh, inhibit virtual-only companies who will now need to coordinate with in-person providers for their patients. So those are some of the areas that I think we're likely to see some activity in the in the future. Thank you so much. This has been Kate Driscoll from Morrison Forrester providing insights in, with respect to enforcement trends in telehealth. This has been the Voices in Health Law podcast, and I'm your host, Felicia Z. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Felicia. Really appreciate your time.